Hi, everybody. It's Steph. It is the 30th of May, 2010, just after 4 p.m. Thank you so much for joining us for our regularly scheduled Sunday Philosophy Chittle Chattel. And uh, thanks to everyone who has donated and subscribed this month, a world of difference. And I really appreciate that. Uh, We are pushing out hundreds of thousands of philosophy topics to people every month. Uh, It really is an amazing, amazing eruption of ideas and fascination and curiosity in the world. And thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you so much for your support, whether it's, you know, sharing a, a video or a podcast or an article or just talking about your interest in philosophy or donations of, of time and money. I just really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Uh, it's close to the end of the month. So if you do have a few loose shekels rolling around the old coin uh, pockets, I would really appreciate it if you could go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate dot html i would read it's very very kind and that having been said let's move on with the show um it's uh it's so neat uh isabella has turned into a hug monster and um what that means is that whenever she sees another child she will run towards them with her arms <laughs> outstretched to hug them producing a wide variety of <laughs> responses from other children from outright horror to uh, i believe if they had mini mace on them they would take her down uh, to uh, returning the hugs and so on she has in fact uh, knocked one boy over in her enthusiasm to hug him because he was quite <laughs> young and only learning how to walk and um she has also um Ah, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, really cute. Uh, this, this, of course, we're a very huggy family, so I guess that's where she gets this from, but, uh, we certainly didn't teach her to do it. She just spontaneously began <laughs> running up to people. I even have a little video footage of her hugging, uh, the mannequins in Old Navy. <laughs> Maybe it's just a kind of practice or whatever, but it really is quite, uh, it's just, it's beyond adorable. So, yeah, I just think that's a, a neat update. Other than that, uh, she's doing, uh, she's doing really well. She starts gymnastics. Uh, next month, which uh, we're uh, we're all looking uh, looking forward to, and um, well, when I say looking forward to, I mean I will be hiding in a whimpering bag of nervousness under a couch somewhere because they do actually walk on the balance beams and they do all these things, which for a parent who spent seventeen months keeping her uninjured is a uh, is a challenging situation for sure. That kind of transition, but eh, you know it's necessary, and uh, she's already. Uh, she's just on the verge of doing somersaults. She's learned the concept upside down. And so she'll, you know, we'll be in the mall and she'll suddenly hurl herself at the ground uh, and uh, try and do a somersault, which usually means just sort of falling over sideways. But uh, I think that we really need to harness that for the power of good. And uh, uh, she is, uh, she's really, she's trying to learn how to jump. So we've, you know, we've got the song, um, half a pound of tuppany rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel and unpop. She throws herself up in the air to jump yet. So she gets very enthusiastic and uh, basically, again, hurls herself. A lot of hurling to the ground at this phase uh, of her life. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's just amazing to me how – I mean, there's, there's two things that are going on that are really cool other than the, the general physical stuff. The one is this, this amazing eruption of language. Like she learns a word once and it's just there forever. I mean, can you imagine learning, trying to learn a foreign language and – you get the word in its context just once. And sometimes it's not even something we teach her. It's just something she picks up in passing and it just sticks there like uh, Paul Schaefer on a Velcro wall. And that is really uh, an amazing, amazing thing to see. Uh, so, cause, cause I keep thinking I need to teach her and <laughs> we really don't. Uh, and she says, she knows what a mirror is now. And uh, she's really getting some pretty cool 
concepts. And she's really abstracting very well as well. Uh, so uh, just this morning, uh, I took her to uh, – uh, Christina went to uh, an aerobics class, and I took Isabella to the pool. And um, just as I was doing the oh, – you wouldn't believe – trying to get a child out of the house, particularly to a pool, uh, is very akin to getting a man to the moon uh, when it comes to logistics and planning and <laughs> making sure you have everything. And um, uh, so – uh, I was just, she's learned the word umbrella. I mean, she doesn't obviously say it quite that way. Uh, uh, umbra, umbra. But uh, she has learned the word umbrella. And once, a, a week or two ago, I opened and closed an umbrella. And when I was getting something from the uh, the front cupboard, uh, some front hallway cupboard, this uh, morning, she kept saying umbra, umbra. And I couldn't understand what she was talking about because, of course, there was no open umbrella. But she saw that there, we have an umbrella hanging in the coat rack that's closed tight. And so she knew that that was an umbrella just like the open ones. You know, when we go to the mall, there's, they have this sort of summer stuff that's out there and the, and they have the, the chairs for the patio and the umbrella over. So she knew that it was a closed umbrella because she'd seen it once a couple of weeks ago. And that just blows my mind how, how quickly that is uh, moving. And I, you know, I think she's uh, pretty standard for kids. She's uh, 17 months, but. Uh, it is an amazing thing to see that develop. And uh, the other thing that's really cool as well is her sense of spatial – I don't – I don't. maybe there's a technical term for it that I don't know. It's not exactly spatial reasoning, although that's doing well too. But what it is is her sense of spatial mapping, right? So uh, at the gym uh, that I go to, uh, upstairs – uh, way in the back, there's a, um, you know, one of those water dispensers you pull the lever forward and the water comes out into a little cup. And of course, she's fascinated with water. She can sit there and play in, in the sink for an hour. And she loves that little water machine. And uh, this morning, she wanted to go up the stairs and then she made a beeline straight to this water machine, which she's played with once or twice a couple of weeks ago. So it really is neat the degree to which she has a map of mental space of where things are, right? So uh, in the old Navy store in the mall we go to regularly, there is a plastic dog, which she quite likes, and she's trying to learn how to ride it now. And um, when we go to the mall, she knows which route to take to get to that dog. So it really is neat to see the degree to which she's developing a mental map of the world and the things that she likes within it. And she, she knows her way. We have to walk about 10 or 15 minutes to get to the park, and there's a couple of twists and turns. But she knows the way to the park now, so she'll just start making a barrel. She'll turn here. She'll turn there. And it really is just fascinating to see the degree to which her mind is internalizing the world around her and creating a sort of mini-map of, uh, of things that she likes and where she likes to go. It uh, it's really is amazing to see. So um, I just sort of wanted to, uh, wanted to point that out. So these are just, um, uh, these are just really cool things to notice uh, uh, when you have kids. Or, of course, if you have kids now, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But uh, they are just, I mean, she's just so amazingly precious and cool. And uh, this phase in particular is just astounding. So, All right. So we have, um, that's it for my intro. Uh, I'm happy to take questions. We have, I guess, a fairly large number of people in the chat room. Hello, and thank you for listening, and welcome to uh, Freedom Main Radio's Sunday call-in show. You can type your questions into the chat window. Uh, if I miss them, just put them in a big font. Uh, a Klingon font is, uh, is cool uh, because I'm not. Uh, or you can um, ask James P. to uh, to receive a call if you'd like to call uh, a number. If you don't have Skype, we can receive regular old telephone calls. 
uh, or you can give him your Skype ID and he can call you there. Uh, so the number to call after you've talked to James P. in the chat room is 315-876-9705. Hello? Hello. Hey, am I on the air? Uh, you sure am. Well, as far as on the air oh. goes, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I have a question about love. Um, it seems like in my own personal life that I don't really love anybody. And I go and I I'm have sorry, can I just friends. interrupt you at the beginning? I just, yeah. I just want, I'm sorry to interrupt you right when you're starting, but I just want to make sure I really understand it. Really, it's one of these words that I don't like, <laughs> which is, you know, not, doesn't mean anything other than I don't like it. So when you say you, you don't really love anyone, do you mean that you have strong affection for some people, but it doesn't quite get into the realm of love, or, uh, or you don't feel that sensation of love or even strong affection? Well, I have um, empathy for people, uh, for, certainly. Um, I do have, um, like, I do care about people, and I do feel bad when bad things happen to people. Uh, however, there, like, for example, if, if I go out to a bar with some friends, they'll, they'll, all they'll be doing is they'll be looking at a girl's ass, and they'll say, look at that ass and they'll and they'll just be like their mouths will be watering over it and i really don't understand it and they have enough to that that's not really love that's like passion but i don't really have that if that makes sense actually and I, and I, I think i, I think understand. that's technically called objectification which is where you're reducing a human personality to two gluteal muscles I, I wouldn't even say that that's passion so you've given sort of two examples, which I just want to make sure I'm following what you're saying. And I appreciate you bringing this issue up. It's a very important issue. Love is a very, very essential part of of, love, of life and happiness. But the first thing you said was you feel empathy when other people are suffering and so on. And I, I don't want to reduce it to something simplistic or silly, but the fact that you wince when somebody takes a groin shot in America's Funniest Videos is not particularly close to love. The fact that you don't want to just talk about uh, a woman's ass uh, is not uh, is not obviously that that's not love. That's sort of a base dehumanized kind of lust. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure when you say you don't really love anyone, what your definition of love or what what you think you would experience love as. Okay, I should probably change the word love then. Uh, it seems like everyone. Okay, here's here's. Let's try this. It seems like everybody else has a libido and I don't. You mean a sex drive? Yeah. Okay. So, we're, in a sense, we're talking about lust, right? Which is a fine word and 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 not a, and well worthy of philosophical examination. Right. Uh, I, sh I probably shouldn't have used the word love. No, no, that's good. This is why I think it's important to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Right. So, like, I, I just don't understand. And they, they, they look at me funny, like, oh, did you see that girl's rack? And I'll go, oh, did you see they have whatever food tonight at the dining hall or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, they, it's like I'm completely not focused on what they're focused on. Right. So they're saying, check out this woman's, they're saying, check out this woman's rack. And you're saying, check out this restaurant's spice rack, baby, because that's what really gets me going. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yes. It's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's exactly what will happen. Uh, I remember uh, my friends and I, we went to a club in New York City, and they were talking about all the good-looking girls there, and we were going, and um, 
uh, we went out to a supermarket afterwards to pick up some food, and I'm like, you know, guys, look, they have melons, strawberry lemonade. (laughs) <laughs> strawberry lemonade and you know raspberry vodka look at all these really cool um flavored drinks and they were like how come you don't feel that way about women and it was it was kind of hard to hear that i i don't know but it seems like you know i i'm i'm certainly friends with women i'm friends with men i'm friends with a lot of people i just don't have that that drive that other people have if that makes sense right 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 well, um, to to be blunt, your friends sound a little horrifying. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how old you are, and I, I assume that they're not in their 30s yet, right? Or, or even their late 20s. So they sound they sound. I'm, young. I'm, nine, I'm 19 and in college. 19 and in college. Okay, so, um, yeah, there is uh, a certain amount of uh, machismo and bravado, and a certain amount of conformity. I think in some of the ways that men talk about women, uh, I think it is fairly vile. Uh, I had a um, but but I can sympathize. I, I had a squash partner once when I lived in a in a condo building that has squash squash courts on it. I had a squash partner who was a real man whore. Uh, there's no real nice nice way to put it. He was a good squash player, and I enjoyed playing squash with him. But uh, the way he talked about women and the way he dealt with women was just astounding. Uh, and and he I've mentioned this in a podcast before, so I just touched on it briefly. But he um uh, he brought. Uh, he was dating a woman, and, and he was throwing a party at a, at a warehouse, and he was dating a woman, and he's like, oh, I've got to stay till the end of the party, so you just go home and, you know, get comfortable in my bed, and I'll be home when I get home, right? And uh, then he picked up another woman and brought this woman home in the hopes that they could have a threesome, and he fantasized about this, and he thought he would be able to talk his way in, and then the women saw each other. It didn't, you know, because the world isn't a penthouse magazine, so it didn't go, of course, that way. And uh, one of the women ended up storming out. He talked the other woman into staying the night and had sex with her. And then, and then he got sick. He got, and then this woman who'd stormed out kept calling him back. And because he didn't call her back because he was sick, she got increasingly frantic and then begged him to call her back and apologized for. And <clears throat> this world, and I went to one or two social gatherings with this guy just out of curiosity more than anything else. And the way that uh, these men... And, and I don't know if you or your friends are good looking, but it, it seems to cluster a little bit about around good looking men that uh, they really do uh, treat women in the most appalling manner. But the only thing that's more appalling <laughs> than how they treat women is how the women allow themselves to be treated, which is a whole other story, of course. But uh, um, I, I think that is uh, uh, that is one of the problems with physical attractiveness. Would you say that, that you and your friends are a good looking crew? Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Now, when you say absolutely I, I, and laugh, I don't know whether you're being serious or not. Well, oh, all right. I, I, I just, I'm being overly uh, serious, I guess, just for comedic effect, because to, to sound, not to sound arrogant or anything. But they could but look I at guys, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Right. And, and good-looking guys, and, uh, you know, I, I speak as an anthropologist more than an inhabitant of the tribe, if that makes any sense. But, but look, good-looking guys uh, have this particular approach towards women, and unfortunately, they can get away with it because uh, the women will continue to throw themselves uh, at, uh, at these guys quite often. And so they have a kind of arrogance that comes from beauty and a kind of but, – but see, beauty has used them. Physical beauty uses you. Uh, and it, and so, in a sense, then you want to use others because we get very strong responses from people when we have 
uh, physical attractiveness that has nothing to do with who we are. So in a sense, other people use us and so we use others. And beauty, although it's something that we always think about and desire and it certainly is very culturally strong, physical beauty uh, is, uh, is a great uh, alienator in, in the same way that great wealth can be an alienator. Like if you have to show up at every party driving a Maserati because you can't ever not show up looking good, right? I mean, because if you look good, you look good. Uh, like a, a rich man can hide his wealth. Uh, a beautiful man can't hide his physical beauty. And so if you always had to show up and, and flaunt your money everywhere you went, that would put a distance between you and those around you. Uh, and some people would be impressed and some people would roll their eyes, but it would always be there as something between you and the other people would be your great wealth and great beauty has... You know, Sorry, go ahead. I think there's something something missing um, uh, or something that may have changed since you were on the dating scene. Is that it seems like now men are going after women and women kind of expect that men do it. In my time, like at college, I don't really notice any women going after men. It's always men going after women. And, uh, oh, that's, maybe that's it's the same the, as it was. I have a limited, yeah, that's the same as it was. Maybe it's my limited perspective. It, I think I just may, may have a limited perspective, but like I I know that I have um, certain physical features that are better looking than other guys. Yet these other guys are are getting a lot more women than I am, and maybe it's because they're they don't have the same standard of rationality that I do. I think women might be intimidated by me, especially because I don't know I a voluntarist, and I love having intellectual discourse about private property rights. Uh, maybe it's because I articulate myself well. I don't know. But it seems like even though that I'm just as good-looking as everybody, all of my other friends, maybe they dumb themselves down. I don't, I, I don't really know what's going on there. Sorry, but, the day, uh, it, the it, day it, is it, your it, friends? Excuse me? Sorry, when you say they dumb themselves down, do you mean the women or your friends? My friends. Right. Because, I, I mean, I, I'm certainly as, just as good-looking. I'm not, you know, we're not all great-looking. We're not models. But we're all pretty good-looking, yet they seem to get a bunch of women, and I don't. And, I, you know, maybe it's just because I like the whole rational, objective, voluntary principles thing, and I like having intellectual discussions, and I like being articulate when I talk to people, and that might be, that might put them off, because either they're just looking to get laid or whatever, but, you know, do you see the, uh, the situation? Oh, do I see I, it? My God, I, I think everybody, every, every man with an ounce of sensitivity between his ears and an ounce of restraint between his legs uh, ha understands exactly what you're going, you're going through and what you're experiencing. And um, uh, I would, uh, I, I remember I went on a, um, a vacation with uh, uh, someone once uh, and uh, I was chatting up this, um, this woman. Uh, this was in the Dominican Republic, I think it was. Uh, this is many, many years ago. And I was chatting up this woman, and we were having a great conversation. Uh, she was very interested in, in politics, so we were talking politics, and we talked some philosophy and all that sort of stuff, right? And uh, she was a good-looking woman, and I was thinking like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> not to be overly cliched, but, you know, a woman who's uh, attractive and intelligent and, oh, a good conversationalist and so on, right? And then um, some guy sort of came and sat down near us, 
And he was, you know, six foot three and uh, ripped and, you know, had that bushy blonde. I guess it was, it was a bushy blonde, beachy kind of hairdo that was in vogue back then. And, of course, I was hanging on to my uh, few remaining hairs, like, I think, actually with my fists at the time. <laughs> so it wasn't quite a competition as far as looks went. And I could feel her, her, you know, it was like the smoke monster ripping through the island of Lost, right? I could see or feel her attention move towards this guy because right? he was a high-status physical alpha male. And uh, I could feel like... Uh, me slowly parachuting, resisting and kicking into the friend zone. And I could see her hormones coursing like a whitewater raft towards this guy. And sure enough, right, they, uh, they ended up hooking up and, um, uh, ended up for that week. Uh, I, you know, she was there with some friends and we hung out with, uh, friends, but, uh, uh, she was vanished for the whole week because she was basically, I think, <laughs> I don't know, I assume just they were banging each other senseless and, and, uh, feeling very, uh, pristine and alpha physicality uh, all the time. And I thought it was a real shame because, because this guy, uh, was, you know, and again, not to slight the profession, but, you know, just some construction worker who I tried having a conversation with him one time when they showed up for dinner. Uh, and he was, you know, about as intelligent as a bad, a bag of dead squirrels, live squirrels, not even. And so it was, uh, and I remember thinking like, well, this guy doesn't know what her opinions are on politics or opinions are on philosophy or anything like that. But, that is a kind of fever that takes over people sometimes in the presence of uh, uh, of, of physical beauty. And uh, so I think that the, when you say your friends get girls, I think it's important to recognize that the girls they get, frankly, aren't worth very much. Because if they're just, in a sense, so empty and vacuous that they're throwing themselves at the most attractive man who will have them, then they're using their vaginas as a kind of pathetic coinage. It's a very sad well, thing. I don't, I don't know if that's what is um, making, not, not making me upset. This, is, this doesn't really make me too upset, but uh, it's just slightly concerning because if you're in a room where everyone says that a line is a circle, and you're the only person who disagrees, it causes, like, ang not anxiety, but it causes discomfort when you're the only person who, who doesn't really see what they see, if that makes sense. You but, know but, what I mean? Well, so, but no, I understand that, but, but tell me what the value is of these friends. I'm not saying there's no value, but, but help me understand, because the, the, the portrait that you're painting is of a bunch of vacuous Guido meatheads, right? So, so tell me, like, if you like, forget about the women you might want to date. What about the friends you're actually friends with, right? If they don't get you or they feel like you liking things other than bits of women, <laughs> like some sort of cadaver, right? Well, no, I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't put me down. They're very respectful. They, you know, it's just like, I just, they're very respectful. I just feel like I can't, because you know how there are certain friends that you can talk about certain things with? and other friends that you can't talk about certain things with, but they're still all friends. Like, there are certain topics of certain friends that you'll okay, talk well, about, tell, for example. Tell me, and I, you know, I'm sure, I have no skepticism here, I just want to understand, but tell me the value of going to a bar with these friends. What is, what is good about it? Well, the, okay. Um, I guess maybe because I'm not going to, for me, I'm not going to be going anywhere else that night anyway, if that makes sense. 
and I enjoy no, spending my time with that doesn't look that doesn't make sense because it's like okay you know, it, 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 to take a silly example, if if they were going to a drive-by shooting, you'd find something on TV, right? So the fact okay. that you don't have anything else to do is not a very ringing endorsement of, you know, um, of of the quality of the time you spend with them. Okay, well, the, uh, all right. The the time, the most time that I spend with them is usually eating at dinner in the college dining hall, um, and we all have you know common interests. So that's, I guess, uh, a common interest is a, a better answer to your question. And what are the common interests? Uh, running. We have similar classes together. Um, we all run every single day, five to ten miles. Um, there's one friend in particular that I run with um, every single day. So we, we have that, that bond established. Oh, sorry, what's the bond? I mean, you run together. I, I'm not sure what the bond is. Well, the bond is that we we have you know 500 miles this year logged with each other. Well, so what? So you're running next to someone. I'm, again, are you talking during these runs about important things or things at least that are important to you? I mean, running yeah, next to someone yeah. doesn't right. I used to ride the bus right. with people to work every day. That doesn't mean that we were friends, right? Proximity is not right. right. So I just want to make no, sure. No, no, no. We 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 talk. We talk to each other. We have classes together. It, it, you know what I mean, and when we, and especially but when I talk, talk to, sorry, but what what do you talk to each other about that's meaningful? Well, they see they'll never bring up anything that's meaningful to me, but I always bring up things that are meaningful to me, and they will always and they will always listen to me, and they will always give their feedback on what I have to say. But usually, I'm the one initiating the conversation where we talk about meaningful. Um, Topics. So why don't you I mean, why don't you go dig up some nerds? Dig up some who? Nerds, some geeks. Well, I have friends on both ends of the spectrum. These are the more athletic friends. Okay, but you geeks, have sorry, I have I'm just going to have to keep too. interrupting you because I want to make sure we get to the heart of the matter. So you have, I mean, because in my experience and as a long time geek slash nerd, I think I can speak with some authority on this, right? I mean, the people who aren't the pretty empty-headed jocks, which, you know, it sounds like who you're talking about, uh, uh, they tend to have a little bit more depth and richness to them because they've had to develop more of an inner life because uh, they can't get by on the shiny exterior so much. Uh, so uh, if you're, uh, I would imagine that your more nerdy friends wouldn't be out there, you know, saying, oh, I'd hit that ass, you know, or whatever, right? Right, that, that's correct. Okay, so why do you why don't you spend more social time with the uh, with the geekies geekers? I find it very difficult to spend time with the nerdy geeky people for, and I I don't really, I don't really understand why. It's just uh, these nerdy because I I guess you could call me a nerd because I. You know, I run free BSD. I'm a server administrator. I know a bunch of programming languages, so I have my fair share of nerdiness knowledge. And I guess I'm wanting to branch out from, and, and I want to get a different taste. If that makes sense, because I I like computers. I like you know technology and nerdy things but at the same time i don't want to be obsessed with that all the time i want to get other ends of the spectrum because if you were to put me on the nerd bar i'd be all the way at the the polar opposite from athlete uh and what what, what college has shown me 
was when I, because before college, when I was, you know, when I was extremely nerdy, I was almost racist against athletes. And now that I'm friends with these athletes, they kind of broke that prejudice and they got me to do athletic things myself. And that makes me feel like I've had personal growth. And it's in that way that I feel like uh, I, that's why I enjoy spending time with these people is because they've really broken that prejudice that I had throughout high school that uh, that athletes are all stupid or unfriendly or whatever. Well, I've got to tell sense. you, you're, you're not doing a lot to break that stereotype in what you're reporting here. But let me ask you another question, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, would you say that your parents had a healthy romantic relationship? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they... They talk to each other, and I think that's the key. Okay, so your parents have a healthy sort of love-romantic relationship, right? Yes. So, dude, I mean, how can there really be any question as to why you have difficulty objectifying women when your father treats your mother as a whole person? That's a great point. <laughs> I, it's All it is, is it's not... It just gets me worried, because people have even like asked me before if I'm gay and and, and I mean it, you know that, that kind people of have asked you if you're gay because yeah, if, if I don't if I if I if, oh if, a, if a really cute girl walks by and they go oh look at that ass what do you think and I go eh now you his ass I mean? on the oh, other hand God. is like two two apples in a sock his ass sorry just kidding right you know what I, I mean, so and, and all, what oh, mean. it's not it's it's the the thing that concerns me is that everyone it seems is um, doing is is doing something different than I am, and it's like I'm the odd man out. No, and no, it, no, it, no, no. This, this, this is, no, no, not everyone. The people that you're choosing to hang out with, not okay, every. Yeah, true. The people that you're choosing to and hang out with these shallow. Uh, physical obsessed, uh, objectifying, hollow, empty-headed jocks, by your description, they're the ones who have something wrong with you looking, uh, with you feeling uncomfortable looking at someone. Uh, like, to me, the, looking at a woman and saying, oh, great ass, is exactly the same as looking at a black guy and using some racial epithet. It's reducing someone to a single aspect of accidental physicality. Right, whether it's the color of the skin or the shape of an ass, it is a dehumanizing thing to do. Now, if you choose to hang out with people like that, of course they're going to have a problem with uh, with you not doing that cold and ugly thing of dehumanizing another person. Now, don't get me wrong; I know a great ass when I see it, and I'm very happy to see it. But I'm aware of that, right? So I'm not trying to say all I ever see is the inner soul of a human being. And whether they're 90 or whether they're 20, it doesn't – I mean, we all human beings and we look at that and we have that attraction to the physical. But you have to put it in context and not let it, uh, not let it run your life. I also think that uh, – I mean, we all know that physical attractiveness tends to be genetic. And so it could very well be that uh, your friends have physically attractive parents who were attracted to each other because of their physical attractiveness and therefore did not have that sort of whole human being interaction that your own parents have. So, you know, the thing to do is to try and get to the root. If I were you, right, I would try and get to the root of these people's behaviors, right? And I would say, yeah, you kiss your mother with that mouth. Or, no, I would say something like, uh, well, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, your mom or your dad. Tell me about your parents' marriage. You know, I don't think it'll take you long to find out 
that uh, there are problems uh, in those families which result in this kind of uh, objectification. Uh, and uh, because you didn't come from this kind of family, more power to you. I think that's fantastic. And if you get a chance, please congratulate your parents for me for giving you such a great example of a whole person marriage and a, a good romantic relationship. But because you weren't trained in this kind of dehumanization, because you weren't broken down, because you were exposed to positive role models in, in romance and love, then you can't objectify and reduce people to mere bits of flesh. And uh, so if you're going to keep hanging out with people like that, I think it's important to try and get to the root just out of your own curiosity of why they are the way that they are, to try and pierce the machismo to find out something real uh, underneath, something that's true underneath. And if your your friends have any soul to them, and I hope that they do, then they will probably in the long run be grateful for just that kind of attention. But I wouldn't extrapolate. I mean, you know, if I hang out with a bunch of, and I'm not equating your friends to this, but it's just a metaphor, right? If I hang out with a bunch of racists and they, you know, keep making up, making these horrible statements about, about pe people based on ethnicity or race. And I say, well, you know, I don't really think that's a just or fair thing to say or whatever. Then of course, at some point I'm going to face this challenge of like, well, on the one hand, I don't think that what they're doing is good. On the other hand, I'm still hanging out with them. And I think at some point, uh, you either have to, to take a stand for that which your parents taught you around loving the whole person or at least thinking about right. more than the no, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's tough. What's tough is being the fifth wheel. Um, that's, that's one thing for me that is just uh, – it makes me not want to you know, do anything with those people when it's – you know him and his girlfriend, him and his girlfriend, and then me, if that right. makes sense. Right, sure. You know, that's, that's one thing that's always very tough. And I see everybody, it seems like to me, everybody I know has a girlfriend. Everyone is hooking up with somebody except me, you know? And I don't want to seem like, I don't want it to make myself seem like I have a problem, but everyone else seems to be doing something that I'm not. And it just, it makes me concerned. Right, right. Well, um, then I would suggest uh, you either need to adopt the standards of the people you're hanging out with or find different people to adopt your standards, if that makes any sense. That would be my uh, my suggestion, right? So, so if your friends get women by objectifying women, and that's what you envy, which I can understand, right? Then you need to start objectifying women or you need to get them to stop objectifying women uh, or you need to deal like just live with with the situation but i uh, i don't think there's any any other uh, approach that will will do anything right all right well i appreciate you uh, having this discourse with me uh, maybe i'll call on next week i uh, i would always be happy to chat thank you so much for bringing up a very important and interesting topic thank you Steph. all right all right we have time oh my god we have nothing but time time is on our side yes mr g go ahead yo so um, <laughs> yo yeah i had a quick question um i had a question about um well i didn't tell you this that i've begun uh for some supplementary income tutoring um, tutoring uh, mainly small children i've only i've only been doing one but i may have two more this week and I've run up against some challenges uh, when tutoring, and I wanted to kind of run them by you and see if you had any perspective. Sure, go for it. So uh, the, the girl that I've been tutoring is nine years old, and she's Muslim. Uh, she's raised by Muslim parents. 
and they are in a not great part of Philadelphia, but also not a horrible uh, part of Philly. Like, it's not like an absolute hellhole, but it's a, a poorer neighborhood. And I've gotten the sense, I've only been tutoring her for about three sessions, and I get the sense that it is not a lack of intelligence in this girl, uh, or in really a lack of, like, it's not that she's being belligerent and just not wanting to study. She's just really stressed. Like, she she goes to a charter school, so she wakes up at six or seven, gets to school at eight, and stays until five, and then she has to go to the mosque for a few hours, and so she doesn't get home until eight, and then she has to do whatever homework. Like, she's just, like, stressed. So I've had, like, an unstructured approach to the lessons, and I, I just kind of say, hey, what what do you want to do today? What are you having some trouble with? And I, I've found that I've not even really been having to teach her much as much as just give her sort of positive feedback and like maybe teach her some math tricks on things that I do to make sort of division easier or multiplication easier. And, but I, I, I some, I just get a sense of like that I'm not doing much in the lessons and I'm like, as far as teaching and I, I'm feeling, um, I guess frustrated around like what I'm bringing to the lessons and I'm also feeling some sort of like how do I structure the the the, the tutoring lessons in a, in a way that can help her with the issues that are really causing her problems which are the stuff like I mean having to work longer than most people work in a in a work day like in the in the white collar world like she's putting in longer days than most adults do so did you get what i'm kind of going at uh yeah i really do and i it's a huge issue i think um i mean the the mosque thing is pretty horrendous but um the overscheduling of children's lives is is a is an epidemic these days and uh it is uh i mean i think it's i think it's pretty bad uh, I think it's, I mean, I think it's very important for children to have a lot of unstructured time. That way they can figure out what their own interests are. They can uh, figure out what their own uh, thoughts are. And uh, so, I, you know, this overscheduling of, of kids uh, is, you know, results in, in stress and tension. And, uh, uh, you know, there was this uh, this guy up the road, uh, Isabella likes his daughter. She does these gymnastics on the lawn. So Isabella, of course, being fascinated by anything that goes upside down will go up and knock her over with a hug of course but this um this guy was saying to me i was like oh you know sorry we gotta go she's got dance and then she's got something else and you know then she's got this and that and you you'll understand when your daughter gets older you'll spend your whole time driving her places and i'm like i really won't i really 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 <laughs> won't uh do that i mean there's a lot of things of course that i have issues with with uh, with regards to my own childhood and and uh, i'm not going to go into any of those here but what i will say is that my the opportunity to experience boredom was really important for me as a child. Uh, I think that uh, it is really really important. Uh, boredom is the spark that ignites the inner life, and I think this is it's so well established. Even if we just look at things anecdotally, right? That uh, um, a lot of uh, people who were became famous writers like Robbie Louis Stevenson's and so on experienced significant bouts of childhood illness back in the time where there were no video games or internets or iPods or anything like that. And so they had to sort of make up their own, their own fun. A boredom, I think is a really, really important thing for children to experience, but it is something that the rather hysterical pace of modern families doesn't seem to allow for too much. I mean, 
uh, children are, uh, you know, they're just really herded around at, at near light speed uh, these days. There's not a lot of, uh, of relaxation and unstructured time and so on. And so uh, I think it is, uh, I think it is a big problem. And uh, of course, it comes from the regimenting of childhood that comes through parents not being home for the most part, but rather having to drop their kids into daycares and so on, where everything is regimented and the child has to follow the schedule. Like if the child isn't nappy when the child, when the nap time is there, then too bad, the child has to lie down. And if the child is nappy sooner or later, too bad, you've got to play. And I certainly know that Isabella's schedule changes on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, so, uh, so I think that uh, this over-commitment of children to activities and so on is, I don't know what the root cause of it is. I mean, we can chew it over perhaps another time, but it really does seem to be extraordinarily uh, strong these days. Uh, sorry, somebody says, I got plenty of boredom at school. I don't mean boredom and confinement. <laughs> I don't mean like you could bore a child by locking them in the basement with no toys. I don't mean boredom and confinement and frustration and paralysis. I mean... Uh, I mean, when I, I just remember when I was in my early teens and my brother was still in England and my mom was at work and during the summer I was home, you know, when I was 12 and I had a job in the evenings, uh, but during the day, I had, like I had no money, I had uh, no, uh, uh, no, you know, n nowhere to go. And so I spent a lot of time just, you know, reading or, or thinking or uh, I started to learn how to paint and, and draw and other things just because I was, I was really bored. I sort of go to the library and and read books there, and I'm not saying it's ideal, and and but but I think that the boredom was very important in terms of developing a certain amount of inner life and and so on. So I don't I don't want to go on a, a lot a lot into that, other than to say that I think that it is really important. Now, what I thought was interesting, and it was just a thought that struck me. So you know, you don't don't place any stock in it, of course, but it was a thought that struck me where you said, "Well, I don't feel like I'm doing much with her," but. Isn't it sort of important to give her an example of what not doing much looks like? Right. Yeah. Well, like one of our sessions, I, I think on maybe the second session, because I've had three with her, we just kind of chatted for 20 minutes. Right. 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 You know, I also wouldn't, I'm sorry to speechify, but I also wouldn't underestimate the degree to which children are amazingly thirsty for adult conversation. We, um, uh, this this weekend, uh, no, sorry, this week I went down to Toys R Us with Izzy and I bought her, uh, she loves sand, right? So I bought her a fairly big sand pit and uh, we were having a discussion of should we put it in the backyard or the front yard and we ended up putting it in the front uh, porch because I, you know, if it's in the backyard, then other kids aren't going to see it and come and play. But we found that we've been pretty regularly swarmed by kids and when we take Izzy out, uh, kids uh, swarm her and swarm us. And I think one of the reasons is that I, I actually enjoy having conversations with children. Uh, I, I feel very much at ease with children. And uh, I always um, am, am sort of curious about, you know, their thoughts and, and what their experience is. And I think just having a relaxed and natural conversation with an adult may be something that is not particularly common because we get fairly swarmed when we go out. And so I wouldn't underestimate the value of just having a chat with a child, uh, how, how important that can be. And this also used to happen when I was in, uh, when I was teaching daycare uh, or assisted teaching daycare uh, as a teenager that the kids would actually, <laughs> I don't even remember how this came about and I'm sure it would be allowed now, but they, they would call me at home and we would chat about things and have conversations about stuff. And uh, uh, so I think that is, um, I think that's actually really, really important. 
I think that there is this drive towards structure rather than interaction, but I think what children are most hungry for uh, is interaction. Well, you know, I think when you were when you were saying that, I, I was, I think it, it it drove home to the deeper, I guess, problem of what I, I guess is bothering me, which is that the I guess I'm worried that if I keep on with like kind of the unstructured, what do you want to do? Do you want to do math? Okay, let's have a chat. Let's uh, joke around a little bit. Um, all that kind of like I, I'm kind of worried that the tutoring might end, if that makes sense, and or that her mom might might, might try to step in and structure it more, or you know what I mean? Oh, I totally understand that for sure. And and it comes down to a very is two very basic philosophical positions that I think are, are well worth clarifying, and I promise to do it briefly, but. The two basic philosophical positions are uh, what to cho- I mean, it comes around the question of how do you, quote, civilize children, right? So there's one idea which is fundamentally religious, which is that children are born uh, selfish and, and bad and greedy and violent and so on. Uh, and that's sort of, and they need to be civilized, like the way that you would need to domesticate some wild animal through training, through, uh, you know, positive and negative reinforcements. And, and it, it's just a lot of work to civilize the Lord of the Flies wild animal spirit that is a child. And you need to refine them and you need to you know, turn them into civilized human beings and it's a battle and it's a struggle and they resist it and blah, blah, blah. And I think that that is just unbelievably abusive bullshit. And I'm you know, not talking about these kids' parents because I don't know anything about it, but I'm just saying that I think that that whole perspective that children are born savage and need to be domesticated and civilized through uh, through a lot of external cues is uh, completely ridiculous and uh, entirely disrespectful to, and I think in the long run, abusive to to children. Uh, and it certainly has not been my experience of a father at all. Uh, Isabella has never hit uh, anyone. Uh, she has never snatched anything from anyone. Uh, she has uh, been, uh, a, she is a perfect little lady. And, and I mean, 17 months, right? I mean, so... She is, uh, and this is another reason why kids, I think, like her so much because she is, uh, you know, good natured and and will will joke and and uh, likes to be hugged and so on. And of course, we've not given her any positive or negative. I mean, positive reinforcements. We've not given her any negative reinforcements or any punishment at all. So, a child in her natural state, at least our experience has been, I should say, my experience has been that a child in her natural state or in his natural state. Is is an absolutely gorgeous and perfect human being, uh, and uh, it is the attempt to civilize children that actually turns them feral and resistant and difficult. Uh, you think you're solving a problem, but you're creating the problem that you're trying to solve. And uh, so, I think that uh, the amount of structure that is heaped upon children has a lot to do with the feeling that if left to their own devices, children will be either selfish or violent or lazy. You know, like, ah, oh, if we don't, you know, if we don't make her do her homework, then she's just going to want to sit and play video games all day. Or she's just going to sit there and chat on the computer like she doesn't want to do her homework. And we have to make her do her homework. And so the degree of overscheduling that this kid is receiving may have something to do with that, uh, this belief that, that if left to her own devices, you know, if not managed and controlled, then, and, and of course, to, she's, the parents are right. As all religious, and nationalistic and culturally bound parents are right, which is that, yeah, if, if you don't bully kids into becoming Christians, they're not going to become Christians or Muslims or Jews. Of right. course not. 
I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, one of my experiences is to see whether Isabella comes up with the idea that uh, a 2000 year old carpenter got nailed up to a cross for her sins to see if she comes up with that on her own. Uh, because uh, I'm kind of curious. Shouldn't she shouldn't need to be told about it? Because uh, you know God is everywhere, and uh, and God should come and tell her, right? Have your God come and talk to <laughs> to my kid, right? Uh, so in in a way, culturally bound parents are entirely right. The children who are born knowing nothing of all of the nonsense that adults are addicted to and believe all of the false and abusive crap that uh, it clutters adult brains. They're right. If you leave those kids alone. Culture is replaced by philosophy if you leave children alone, which is why children can't be left alone, because there's far too much profit on harming them through culture. Right, right. Yeah, well, thank you for that feedback. That was enormously helpful. And uh, I think my next session with her is on Thursday, so I'll I'll maybe post something on the board afterwards and uh, keep you you posted. I think... think I mean, I'm no tutor, right? So this is just amateur hours always. But I, I do think that a child, a children are, they're like camels. They're like cacti in that they are lumpy and prickly. No, they are, because they can survive on such little nutrition and sustenance. I can remember maybe two adults in my life that I had an actual conversation with when I was a child, an actual conversation. One was a, um, I think I was 12, uh, and I went to summer camp for a week. And uh, uh, the, the one camp counselor, I remember staying up late with him. And I actually wrote about this in The God of Atheists, because I remember that conversation so vividly uh, that he said that everybody thinks that Frankenstein is the monster, but Frankenstein is not the monster. Frankenstein was the doctor, not the monster. And uh, I remember that for reasons that, of course, are pretty clear in the novel. And there was... Um, uh, a teacher who was actually fairly good at talking to us. I didn't actually have many conversations with him, but he did actually teach us some things that were interesting. And he did treat us not as complete idiots. Uh, and he was quite engaged. He was quite young, and he didn't last very long, of course, right? But um, uh, I, I, and I also remember when I was six having uh, a, quote, debate with someone when I was in Africa uh, in the backseat of my dad's car where I was talking about how cool it would be to have uh, a factory that ran on electricity but also produced electricity. And he was explaining to me that that was impossible because of blah, 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 right? And I remember that. That was a 10-minute conversation where I actually had a conversation with an adult. And those little scraps you can live on for a long time where you're actually having a conversation with an adult who is treating you with dignity and respect and curiosity and not talking down to you but speaking at an appropriate level and so on. So I think that you will do a lot of good for her, not in terms of the content so much as the form of simply having a conversation, asking her her preferences and showing some interest in her as an individual. I think that is uh, uh, that is really a powerful thing that, that I, I remember very vividly experiencing. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. I hope it helps and uh, uh, do keep us posted. I will, absolutely. All right. Do we have anybody else? Oh, cute. Hi, Steph. Hello. I have something related to what Greg brought up. Her. Um, I experienced um, that kind of overscheduling in my life when I was a teenager during high school. Uh, it was 
Um, I think that it affected me really awfully. Like, I'm not sure. Uh, but it was like this, this program that was advanced and they'd give you tons of homework, uh, tons of projects that you do at the same time. And, um, I was staying up late all the time. It was, I was stressed all the time. Uh, do you got this so far? Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, it was like, I was enthusiastic about learning when I got in the program. And, uh, when I got out of the program, like, like as soon as I finished high school, I, uh, just stopped doing anything. Uh, most, most things, uh, and, I just think it it affected me in ways that I still haven't processed. Right. Well, I mean, it is, you know, one of the things that uh, you can read about, if you ever read about literature to do with totalitarianism, one of the things that it's in 1984, it's in the Gulag Archipelago, it's in just about anything that you can uh, read, Victor Frankl's Search for Meaning and uh, anything else written about concentration camps, is that when you are in a totalitarian situation, you are always busy. And uh, in the Soviet Union, of course, uh, this is true from uh, very, very young children, uh, just toddlers and up, that they would be constantly scheduled with something. Uh, and so you would have, I mean, in, in Nazi Germany, there was, of course, you would be up uh, in the morning for, for prayers, uh, and then you would go to school, and then there would be Hitler Youth, and then there would be homework, right? So you're just on this constant merry-go-round of planned activities, and it is fundamentally totalitarian in nature because mm -hmm. it does not flow from the desires of the child. It does not, it, it tells the child that you are owned, your, your time is not your own, you are owned for the pleasure and vanity and profit of others. And the child is, um, and now children may sometimes be enthusiastic about certain aspects of this, but uh, it is not something that is child generated, it is something that is generated by authority figures. And uh, the child is very often uh, put in a position where the parent is either emotionally or financially or both invested in the child pursuing some particular thing. The parent may get a certain amount of uh, ego gratification and vanity uh, sort of satisfaction out of that. But there's this feeling that you can't quit, right? It's a quitter. Don't be a quitter. Or, you know, you've, you've invested so much, right? And yeah. I, I certainly, you know, if the kid really wants to do stuff, you know, if, if Isabel is like, I'm dying to do gymnastics, then great, you know, we'll do gymnastics or we'll do dance or whatever it is that she wants to do. But the, the really, really important aspect is to continually remind the child that it's a voluntary situation. They can quit any time. There's no, there's no, I mean, I'm a big fan of quitting. I think quitting is entirely underrated in society. I think that Free Domain Radio comes out of a whole series of quitting uh, that uh, <laughs> I'm very, very happy about. And I think that there is a sense of stickiness, right? So something that it starts and then you can't stop it. You feel like you're just kind of swept along in a river, right? Yeah. Uh, I got an idea that I've, from what you were saying, like, I'd like to tell you, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the parents in this program were like, uh, they were overbearing kind of parents. They, they were really like on their kids' butts. Of, about everything and uh it, it was like it was a lot like that like they were managing their kids lives for them uh, mm. 
my my parents, and I think that is oh, very harmful for this. Sorry, that's very it's very harmful for children because it does not teach the children to be self directed. It does not teach the children to respond to their own inner cues. Uh, it right. teaches the children to respond to external cues and external pressure, which hollows them out inside. It does. It does. And and the thing about quitting, like uh, there was this humongous pressure, like you if you were in this program, you were the smart one in the school. Uh, if you leave, well, well, you're not smart anymore. You're just you're just another uh, person. Like you're just dumb. You you quit and and you're a loser. Like I mean that that's how I experienced it, and I think that was reinforced uh, it within within the program. Like people who quit were looked down upon. Uh, sure. So I mean, sure, that, and that's that's yeah. a hell of a lot of pressure, right? And and then what you, you never sort of sit there and say, "Do I want to do this?" Or if you ever have a strong desire not to do it, then you end up self-attacking because it's like, "Oh, I must be a quitter. I must, you know, I uh, everyone's put so much effort into this, and right?" Yeah, and like I must end be, up uh, respecting your uh, own feelings. Yeah, like I must be unintelligent. I'm not smart enough to handle this. If I was smarter, I would be able to to take on all this work. Uh, I should be able to do this or something. Yeah, when when I think of the number of things in my life that I've been interested and curious about pursuing, you know, I mean, I could go on the list would take forever, right? And I've quit most of them because, you know, it turned out to be something I really wasn't that interested in. Like, oh, I'm going to pick up the guitar. I'd really love to learn how to play guitar. I learned three songs on the guitar and then I just didn't really find it to be that interesting anymore. You know, whereas other things I've picked up. Uh, like philosophy, which has become a lifelong passion, and uh, those things are, are are things that stick with me. But the vast majority of things, uh, you know, it's fun, right? You know, try a little bit here and there, and then you uh, you find that it's not particularly to your tastes. The amount of experimentation and casting aside that goes on throughout childhood is enormous. And if children aren't allowed to quit, then I think that they get stuck in things that they may not enjoy, which is obviously bad enough. But what's even worse is they don't get to find out what the hell it is that they really would enjoy. Right. I really regret going into that program. I might even. Well, I hope it's not. Oh, wait, 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 wait. How old were you when you went into the program? I was 14. Right. And was it was it all your choice? Was it something that you were uh, given the choice to do or the choice to leave? But you said that there was a lot of pressure put on you, right? Um, it, within the program, yeah. Like, but my parents weren't like those other parents. My parents were like, they didn't even pay much attention to me. You know, mm. I just uh, I wanted I wanted to be uh, seen as smart and and uh, special and stuff. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I, I mean, if I were you, thinking about my fourteen-year-old self, I would not, uh, I would not say that, you know, I really regret my choice of X, you know, particularly since you were raised in an environment where choice was not exactly encouraged, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, although, so you're like, just trying to battle your way through happen? and survive. And sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but I, I just keep thinking, uh, what would have happened if I hadn't have gone it through that, like? Maybe I wouldn't have so much trouble with motivation. Like, I don't even take very good care of myself anymore. I just, like, I have trouble getting jobs because I just don't want jobs, you know? Like, I'm finally in a situation where I can choose, and I just, I don't even uh, do very much. Right, right. And I, I really do sympathize with that, but uh, I would say that that's not primarily the fault of this program, but this program was a symptom 
of, of other things to do with your family in my, you know, my guess would be. Yeah. Right. I would look at it as a symptom and say, well, gee, because if you say, well, gee, if I'd made a different choice when I was 14, maybe my life would be different right now. But uh, I don't, uh, I, I think you need to, it's not like you had a lot of choice before 14, right? Uh, yeah. Right. So you want to look back at the lack of choice that you had that may have had as its symptom going into this program and feeling unable to quit. But it is all the stuff that goes uh, goes on beforehand. I'm, you know, I, I always hammer this point, and I hammered it before I became a parent, and I'm hammering it even more strongly now that I have become a parent. The degree of personality development that occurs in the first two years of life will blow your mind when you experience it. Mm. It will blow your mind how much of the personality gets formed in the, I mean, so far, my daughter is 17 and a half months. So much of the personality is formed before you and I can remember a damn thing. So much of the person, it's not just my opinion. I mean, this is the opinion of yeah. science as well, psychology, right? But seeing it, seeing it, uh, is, Isabella is a, a person. She's not a baby. She's not a, she is a person. She has her likes. She has her dislikes. She has things that she's passionate for, things that she's passionate against. Uh, she has things that she's interested in that are very specific and they will sometimes change, but she is a full on personality who expresses things, uh, uh, who asks for things, who rejects things and, and so on. And she is very strong willed, but she is never aggressive. She's never been aggressive the entire time that I've known her. And of course, how could she? She doesn't, she wouldn't be aggressive any more than she's going to burst into fluent Mandarin because she never has experienced aggression in the home. She's never experienced a raised voice. She's certainly never experienced any physical aggression. She's never heard a raised voice and, uh, she's never heard a harsh tone. So she just doesn't speak that language. So I think it's really, you know, it's the same for 14 is where it kicks in. 14 was where the problem occurred. I'm just telling you. Oh, it right. is so much so. earlier than that. Uh, it is so much earlier than that that uh, that occurs. I mean, to me, it's kind of tragic that literally 90% of the children that Isabella wants to go up and give a hug to, like, run away <laughs> or, or run and hide because they're... And the parents always say the same thing. Oh, she's shy. Oh, she's so shy. Oh, he's shy. It's like, I don't I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Mm. But anyway, I mean, just to, to focus on, on you, right? I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pick up the mantle of responsibility for where you are now with you at fourteen. Uh, I just. Uh, I wouldn't if I were you. Okay, you know that might even be my parents because I remember my parents like being like, "You should quit this program. Uh, you're gonna go insane, or you're gonna suffer big problems, or or something like that." So it probably is the case. Yes. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I, to me, you know, a parent, a parent would say, why are you in this situation? Right? A parent should say, why are you in this situation to begin with? You know, tell me, right, of course, you know, yeah. thought, tell me what you felt and, and so on, right? To try and sort of figure out why the child is in this stressful situation. Because uh, just saying you should quit the program uh, is not, uh, I know that's not the sum of the conversation, but that's not, that doesn't help the child learn anything, right? Right. Um, so, you know, I just go back to your very earliest memories, go back to your very earliest things that you, you experienced and just try and figure out what you learned about choice, what you learned about self-care, what you learned about self-motivation, what you learned about responsibility. Um, 
Now, responsibility is something almost that's inflicted. It's used as a punishment for children, uh, and it's not. Responsibility is is a pleasure. And uh, so, anyway, I just okay. I would I would go earlier, and I wouldn't take ownership for a choice that I made when I was fourteen, and say, "Well, this is you know a large part of why I am the way I am now." Uh, I would go earlier and deeper. Okay. All right. You're very welcome. I hope that uh, hope that helps. Do you brush a one to two year old's teeth? Oh man! Now that's a that's a challenge, uh, and I've talked to a number of different people about that. Um, the best we can do is we can get Isabella to hold the toothbrush in her mouth. She won't let us brush her teeth, uh, but we don't really give her sugar, so it's not too big a problem. So um, we do try to brush her teeth, uh, but uh, there's not much you can do until she gets a little bit older. You can do your best uh, to try and brush brush your teeth, but. Um, uh, you know, you, you simply can't force a child. Uh, you certainly can't force an infant, and we would never dream of trying. You just can't uh, can't do it. So, you know, we've tried getting two d- different kinds of toothbrushes, right? Stuff that's little buzzy things and, you know, non-fluoride uh, uh, toothpaste that tastes good and so on. And we brush our teeth in front of her so she gets the idea. So we get, um, uh, we get, uh, we try to get as much as we can. But yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. Uh, someone has asked, is it possible to be affected by frequent abuse before one year old? Well, you should do research with uh, anybody who's got any real accreditations because I'm just some guy on the web. But uh, my understanding is that, yes, it absolutely is. In fact, it is uh, it is foundational to the personality, what it goes on in the first one to two years. The personality appears to be largely formed within the first three to four years. And the first one to two years is the largest portion by far of that. So, oh, yeah, I've tried. Sorry, we tried with that toothpaste as well. So. So yes, uh, uh, to be affected by frequent abuse before one one year, yes, I do believe that is uh, that is the case. I'm just scrolling back up to see if there's any um, any questions I missed. Somebody has asked, "Do you been thank you for the fine?" <laughs> That's quite uh, that is quite uh, strong. Do you believe there should be a national curriculum in schools that are derived by experts in particular subjects or give children free reign? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know yet. Uh, There's still something that I'm, I'm exploring. I don't believe there should be a national curriculum in schools. I don't believe that there is such a thing as a nation. And I certainly don't believe that public schools are anything other than evil, mini brain deadening prisons for, uh, keeping children away from their parents so that your parents can go to work and pay taxes. Uh, but, um, I don't know. I don't know. There is, there's two schools of thought in this, right? So there's homeschooling and then there's unschooling. And unschooling is where you don't have a curriculum. You simply follow the child's interests. And um, uh, I would suggest looking up uh, School Sucks. Uh, Brett Vanart does a podcast, a very good podcast, I think, uh, called School Sucks. Still waiting for him to look at the family, but that may just be my specialty. But um, uh, it's, it's something that's very interesting. I'm, I'm very curious about unschooling. Uh, I must admit that it is close to the edge of my comfort zone because it is just so far from anything that I ever anticipated in terms of schooling. But um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I- I'm I'm still 50-50 about whether schooling is going to work out for Isabella or not. Uh, right now, uh, I don't believe it will, uh, and we may homeschool or unschool, but... Uh, we will we will see uh, as it as it goes forward. Uh, I'm more keen to put her in school if she enjoys it than I am to homeschool. But I certainly will homeschool if she doesn't like school. Uh, what about teaching children good manners, the proper way to eat, talk, and address others? 
Well, um, I think that the only way you teach good manners is you have good manners. Uh, I think that's uh, I think that's the only way that you can teach uh, is to show. Um, you certainly can't teach a child conceptually uh, much at the age that she's at. But I find that Isabella has uh, has very good manners, uh, and I think that's because she sees uh, good manners. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we we always want to, and, and I, I mean, I'm a subject to this. I think as 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 most other people are, but with probably less good reason. Um, we we always want to to in, <laughs> sort of inflict our conclusions or our desired behavior on others or on children in particular. But uh, it's very important to understand that uh, children will. Uh, will repeat what they see uh, long before they ever understand how to name it. And so you can't teach a child, at least in the first couple of years of life, through much other than example. So that, I think, is... Uh, they are imprinting machines. They're not conceptual uh, receptacles, so to speak. So I think that's, uh, I think that's really important. Uh, somebody's asked, uh, if you have abused your kids, what can you do about it? Uh, I've done a podcast on my thoughts about that 1642. So I hope that you will. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say, look, I mean, if you did harm your children uh, as a parent and uh, you recognize that now, first of all, I mean, amazing kudos and congratulations. Uh, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. And uh, so good for you for uh, recognizing and accepting that and wanting to work on that. Uh, so uh, somebody's asked, Steph, at what age will you allow Izzy to listen to your podcasts? That is a great question. Um, I'm not sure that I would accept the premise of allowing her. I mean, at, at some point, she's going to ask me, what do I do? <laughs> and I I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know what to tell her. I don't know. Well, first of all, I think she's going to have, it's going to be a while till she asks that question because I don't really podcast in front of her uh, anymore. And, uh, I don't, um, uh, you know, she, she, I guess she hears me yowling away up here Sunday afternoons, but I try to do a podcasting, uh, outside or when I'm at the gym or away from home. So, uh, I don't think she thinks that I do anything now other than parents. <laughs> you know, I'll just, I don't know, maybe I'll tell her I'm unemployed, which is, <laughs> which is actually kind of true in a way. But, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that I will, uh, I don't know that I will ever forbid her from listening to my podcasts. Uh, I think, of course, I'm going to face the challenge because, you know, I guess John Stewart faces this challenge too, that he can be a bit cussy and I can occasionally be a bit cussy. Uh, so I'll have to have that conversation with her and, uh, that is going to be a challenge, right? But, you know, that's just part of the, part of the excitement of parenting. Uh, so I don't think I will ever forbid her from listening to uh to my podcast but um i i can't imagine she's going to have any interest in them for for many years from now so i guess uh we'll just cross that bridge when we come to it but uh, i don't uh i don't know when will i start to write children's books oh i don't know i can't i, I you know I, I i was just thinking you know i probably you know probably going to live to 80 or 90 right that's uh, pretty good genes that way and both my parents are still alive and all that so i probably live to 80 or 90 and it's you know, Izzy's going to go into school when she's, you know, four or five years old. So it's sort of come down to looking at my life as a whole, you know. So if, let's just say four years, right? I'm four years as a full-time parent and part-time philosopher. And again, thank you everybody so much for your kindness uh, with regards to supporting what it is that I'm doing. Four years 
out of uh, uh, 80 years is 5% of my life, right? So, you know, I can spend 5% of my life being a, a honest-to-goodness full-time parent, and that's assuming that Izzy takes to schooling. And it's five years of my, I mean, 5% of my life being a full-time parent. I mean, I spent four years doing an undergraduate degree. Did, was, am I, do I regret that? No, of course not. Is being a, an at-home involved parent more important than being, uh, than getting an undergraduate degree? Well, yeah, absolutely. And so for me, when I look at these, these next couple of years, um, first of all, people, people say the time goes by so quickly. Uh, that's not true. Uh, for me, uh, that's not true. And, from what I've figured, the only people who say that they grow up so fast and time goes by so quickly are people who aren't parents much of the day, right? So if you only see your parents while trying to get them out of the rocket-propelled daycare sled in the morning and then getting them fed and changed and bathed and homeworked and this and that in the evening, then other than weekends, you don't get to really interact with your kids much at all during the day other than management and, and planning, and I, I would imagine that if you don't see your kids, uh, or at least don't have any relaxed time with them for eight, ten, or more hours a day, then yeah, of course it's going to seem like it goes by really quickly. In the same way that if you only get to see one out of every ten frames of a movie, then it looks like it's going by really quickly. Whereas I find that uh, parenting, when you're actually in there, in the trenches and doing it on a daily basis, it does not go by so quickly. Uh, it actually is, is the perfect balance. I'm thrilled when she learns something new, uh, and I'm also thrilled that she's still so tiny and absolutely adorable, as I'm sure she will be adorable forever, though not tiny. So, uh, And I'm also, when she's finished with a phase, I'm ready for the next phase, right? So I'm happy now that I don't have to walk around like some bow-legged Frankenstein so that she doesn't fall over all the time because she's, you know, very stable, and when she falls, she's perfectly fine, and she hasn't hurt herself falling in months and months. So... I was, you know, thrilled that she learned how to walk. And then it's like, oh, no, here comes the bow-legged Frankenstein mode. And now, uh, and, and then when she started to become more steady on her feet, I'm like, well, this is great. And I'm really glad that that part is done. So uh, I don't find that it, um, that time flies in terms of being a parent at all. But I can totally imagine how it would if your uh, kid is in daycare and other people are raising your kid and you get that one frame out of every 10. That's going to seem like a massive fast forward, but I don't find that to be the case and so for me, you know, 5% of my life to create a, a great foundation for my daughter, it doesn't really seem like, I mean, why would you ever do anything uh, like that? So, All right. Sorry, I just... Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to get many books written for the next couple of years, but so what, right? I mean, so I wrote what? five or six books in uh, two years. So <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's perfectly fine. I wouldn't want to be 12 podcasts into FDR and becoming a full-time parent, but I think at 1,700, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not too bad. So somebody has written, a while back, somebody posted this on the forum under the topic, what is the proof of the validity of the non-aggression principle? And I was wondering if you could talk about its significance. There is no proof of the validity of NAP, and UPB doesn't prove that it is. UPB only provides a basis that the NAP is logically consistent. It does not provide evidence that the NAP is objectively true. In order for something to be true, it must be both logically consistent and evidence to back it up. Logical consistency is not enough for something to be true. Well, I completely agree with that. I mean, you could create a bunch of nonsense symbols that all internally reference each other 
and were valid, uh, but uh, didn't have any particular reference to, uh, to objective reality. So uh, I agree with that. So uh, to, this is good, a nice meaty philosophy topic. Let's, uh, let's take out our brain carving knives and, and, uh, and go to town. Uh, so uh, the non-aggression principle is UPB compliant, and it is the only approach to coercion that is UPB compliant which means that if anybody is going to uh, talk uh, anything about uh, the preference or non-preference of uh, of coercion then they have to uh, they have to um, go with the non-aggression principle or their theory is is logically inconsistent and impossible to put into practice and so on now the question then becomes what about the empirical validity behind the um, the non-aggression principle and that's a tough thing that's a tough thing. You can take this kind of empiricism in, in, two, in two ways. And the first is the empiricism of the moment, right? So if somebody stabs a guy and then says it is morally, like, unprovoked, just goes and stabs some guy, not self-defense, and then says it is morally and logically justified for me to initiate force, then their statement is incorrect. And if the statement is incorrect, then the actions that flow from that statement cannot be valid. It cannot be valid. I think that's just really important, right? So if the statement, if the justification is incorrect, then the statement that flows out of that justification is, is invalid. The actions that flow out of that justification is invalid. So for instance, if somebody says, I stabbed the guy because the initiation of force is morally good, then we assume that if that person had understood that the initiation of force is not morally good, then they wouldn't have stabbed the guy. So in a sense, there is an empirical, there is the empirical evidence of their belief in their action, and we assume that actions flow out of beliefs. Why? Because people always justify their actions with reference to beliefs, with reference to ideas, with reference to philosophy or religiosity or nationalism or whatever, right? I mean, the guys who... Uh, terrorists, they have their ideological justifications. And so the empirical evidence is that somebody who believes that the initiation of force is justified will end up stabbing someone using that as their justification. So the evidence that the belief is invalid is the fact that somebody died because there was an incorrect application of an incorrect belief. Or I guess you could say a correct application of uh, an incorrect uh, belief. So that's number one. Number two is, and this goes all the way back to the intro to philosophy series, there is considerable, and I would say overwhelming, and in fact conclusive evidence, that societies that found themselves on the initiation of force are not successful in the long run. Societies which found themselves on the initiation of force are not successful in the long run. Uh, in other words, they collapse, uh, and they collapse as either military or economic or both. And so as, for instance, the violence escalated in the ancient world, either between Athens and Sparta or Rome and every other bipedal life form on the planet, those societies did worse and worse and ended up uh, collapsing, which was very much against the desires and wishes of its uh, inhabitants. Uh, if you look at the European slow... <laughs> A quicksand sucking hole of their finances eating themselves, you can see that the welfare state, uh, the socialist welfare state that is the norm in Europe is uh, causing the death 
of um, uh, of their economies, and uh, it is an irreversible uh, terminal illness at the moment. It's utterly irre- irreversible because the only way that the hidden violence of the system can be combated in, is through explicit violence, which is never going to be palatable. Right? Uh, so you would you cut the pensions of the people on welfare uh, or people who've retired, and then they would be out, and you'd have to you know keep the streets clean using force and things. Right? So the the inherent or implicit violence within the system which taxation is designed to hide, would become explicit. And people being the shockingly corrupt hypocrites that they often are, if not generally are, would be shocked and appalled that a system that was founded on coercion would actually be violent. And uh, they would then say, well, this isn't what we wanted. You see, we wanted the government to steal money and give it to us without anyone, quote, getting hurt. And if people actually did get hurt, they would be shocked, shocked that there was violence in the system because that's, uh, that's just the way people are sadly and unfortunately. So there is empirical evidence that the NAP is uh, uh, is valid. So, for instance, if we look at the NAP as blueprints for a bridge, and we say, look, every time this bridge gets built along the NAP principles, it stays up. So the mathematics of the NAP principles are valid, and then if somebody uses an anti-NAP blueprint for building a bridge, and every time they do that, that bridge falls down, then we have all the proof you were ever going to get in the realm of philosophy. Logical consistency, empirical evidence, and a reason behind why the empirical evidence has to flow, has to flow from the logical incompatibilities of the theory. That is the only proof you're ever going to get in the realm of philosophy. There's nothing more conclusive. Uh, expecting anything more conclusive, conclusive is to start to enter into the realm of psychotic religiosity, which I'm not saying you're doing. I'm just saying that that would be to demand, right? To say, well, we can't find God until we look through every single atom simultaneously in the universe is to create a standard of proof that is completely impossible, of course. The, great, the only proof you're ever going to get in philosophy is logical consistency and empirical evidence. The empirical evidence is not going to be conclusive because there are always people who benefit from a violent society. And you say, well, they benefit. That's why the violent society exists. People in the public sector get paid 50 to 100% more than people in the private sector. So it's great for them until the whole thing comes crashing down. So I would say that um, that's all you're ever going to get in the realm of philosophy. If you want more than that, then you need to go to the Vatican and have half your frontal lobe removed. So that would, I'm not saying this to you personally. I'm just saying that if people want more than that, then uh, that would be my, um, uh, that would be my approach to that question. Oh, I don't, uh, I don't swear in front of Izzy. Somebody's asked, what are your thoughts around swear words with Izzy? I don't, um, uh, I don't, uh, I don't swear in front of Izzy. She's never heard a swear word. I mean, I very rarely swear. Uh, I will swear occasionally in a podcast if I'm very passionate about some wild injustice because the evils of the world sometimes can only be matched by good old base monosyllabic <laughs> Anglo-Saxon words. And so, um, but I don't swear around Izzy because Izzy can't differentiate between swear words and non-swear words. And it's absolutely not cute for a child to stub her toe and say shit. Um, she needs to understand the context of that uh, and the appropriateness of that in the same way that we don't teach her to take a shit in the front yard, right? I mean, that's just not, I mean, she might want to, but it's just not an appropriate thing for her to do. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't swear in front of her. Somebody's asked, Steph, do you think that the northern part of Somalia uh, will ever be modernized with their tribal, with their tribal leader, dear, with their tribal Leo esque model. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't think that Somalia will become uh, any kind of anarchist society or voluntarist society uh, because 
because of the brutality of the child, uh, the way that br- the children are treated so brutally. The children are treated so brutally in Somalia because of the this is because it's part of Africa right, rather than anything to do with Somalia. And African children are treated enormously brutally. You may be interested in uh, seeing a, a documentary called Babies, which follows uh, the infancy and toddlerhood of some babies around the world. If you end up seeing it, post on the message board, maybe we can have a review of it, because I, I found it to be quite a disturbing but uh, a revealing film uh, about people's perceptions of parenthood. But, um, yeah, Somalia, I mean, they're raised, uh, uh, it's primitive, it's tribal, it's incredibly superstitious and religious, uh, which means it's abusive, which means that uh, there's a lot of violence uh, or emotional or physical or verbal abuse within the society in order to get children to conform to all of these crazy uh, tribal systems. So, no, Somalia won't. Uh, Somalia is not an example of philosophical anarchy, right? I mean, anymore, if there was some freak earthquake that knocked down all of the churches in the world, that would not be an atheist society, right? And there was a freak earthquake, so to speak, that knocked down the government of that society, but it was not because people had... Um, discovered philosophy and voluntarism and rejected violence. Uh, this is, the government just collapsed. And uh, that's not the same as um, – it's not. it was not a controlled demolition. <laughs> Shit just fell over. And that's not uh, philosophical, but it is still revealing the degree to which it is successful relative to its neighbors. Uh, somebody has asked, do I believe that abortion is selfish? I, I'm not sure exactly what selfish would mean in that, uh, in that context. Um. I think that abortion is a tragedy. Uh, I think that abortion should be absolutely minimized, and it would be much easier to minimize abortion without the welfare state. It would be much easier to minimize abortion without uh, religiosity, and it's the completely twisted, though inevitably twisted, relationship that religiosity has with human sexuality. Uh, human sexuality is a natural and beauty and healthy, a beautiful and healthy and wonderful part of life that... Uh, is uh, something that religion takes great offense to, for obvious reasons, right? Because uh, religion claims that there's all this divinity in the world, but babies come out with water and blood in a very earthy, in a very non-God kind of way. And so uh, childbirth and sexuality is, um, uh, is an affront to religion because it reminds everybody that we are just mammals with pretensions. And uh, that is highly offensive to the rarefied and uh, beautified platonic ideals of religiosity. So, yeah, I, I, I think it is a tragedy. I, I think it should be it should be minimized. I don't believe that it is murder. Uh, I don't. Um, I think that uh, uh, I think Walter Block's argument that what would be best would be to find some way to keep the fetus alive outside the mother sooner. But this is, uh, and I think this is true of crime in general. A crime in general, uh, we should focus as philosophers. We focus on prevention, not cure, right? I mean, when it comes to violence, philosophy only works in terms of prevention. It does not work in terms of cure because I can't uh, – a UPB is not thick enough to hold a bullet. <laughs> I can't hold that book up. Maybe if I fold it over and it's a weak bullet, I don't know. But uh, syllogisms do not stop bullets. Uh, so philosophy is useless at curing violence. It's completely pointless and useless in the same way that – it's no point changing your diet nine minutes before you have a heart attack. I mean, it's, you're done, right? You're gonna, you know, 20 years ago was the time to prevent it or 10 maybe, but now uh, it doesn't really matter. Like quitting smoking three minutes before you die of lung cancer does not uh, do you any good. So, uh, so philosophy is complete, it's perfectly useless when it comes to curing the world of violence. Uh, philosophy can only work in preventing violence within the world through 
uh, rationality through the good and positive and benevolent and peaceful treatment of children and all those kinds of good things. So um, I don't think that philosophy has anything useful or intelligent to say about uh, abortion as a result. I think that philosophy recognizes that abortion is a tragedy, and it is, of course it is a complete tragedy for the fetus, but it is also a, a, a complete tragedy for the mother. Uh, who, if she has any sensitivity, is going to, uh, you know, of course, remember it uh, with sadness for the rest of her life. And philosophy can't cure that. Uh, but uh, philosophy can work to elucidate the principles that will result in far fewer abortions uh, in, in the world. And I think that would be a, a great thing. <laughs> Changing your diet nine minutes before your heart attack. Add more bacon. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to go out, go out with a smile. Yeah, look, I mean, nobody wants to have an abortion, obviously. I mean, no, people don't wake up and say, you know, this painful and traumatizing procedure is, is my best way to, to spend my day. I, I really don't think that's, uh, I really don't think anybody, and no sane human being wants an abortion. And, uh, I think that the best thing we can have is a society where the incentives are going to be such that, uh, abortions will be, will be minimal, uh, if, if not mostly absent. Uh, and to some degree, of course, it's a scientific issue, right? I mean, um, if you can have a birth control that uh, can be implanted and more permanent rather than a pill which can be forgotten or condoms which can break, then uh, that will help. Uh, that will help, of course. As somebody has said, uh, I'm sorry, let me just pause for a second here because I don't want to keep reading questions if anybody has anything they want to say verbally. Yeah, hey, um, I was wondering if uh, it would be all right to read off the three years post. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Great, great, great idea. Um, this is something I just posted. Uh, I've, I've been at Freedom Main for Freedom Radio for three years, um, this past Friday and, uh, sort of, sort of took a stock and spent some time writing this up. So three years ago, I was barely surviving. I had no relationships in my life, only unavoidable associations. I had no love, no joy, no dreams that I could entertain without falling into savage self-attack. I managed to cling to life only by virtue of yet another upheaval, yet another distraction, yet another drive into the wall at a hundred miles an hour with your eyes shut. The anchors and spears of history threatened even the slightest movement, rattled and clanked at the faintest faintest spark inertia was my destiny and then I was introduced to free domain radio Steph's metaphor comparing the trajectory of life to that of a super tanker is right on the money it's tempting to say that nothing changed three years ago when I started listening to the podcasts and yet in the depths but not far beneath the surface a light shone through the cracks a course to take was revealed and my life began to turn almost imperceptibly toward happiness. I believe that I wouldn't be here without Steph or those that supported him. I wouldn't have lost 60 pounds and kept them off continuing to lose weight. I wouldn't have gotten the toxic relationships out of my life. I wouldn't have gotten a good job. I wouldn't have ever come close to acting. I wouldn't have had the quality of friends that I do now. I may never have found the help I have been receiving in therapy. I wouldn't have been able to change 
without being able to see truth and falsehood, without the happiness and passion and compassion that Steph brings to bear through his podcasts. I still have work to do, but my life is forever changed. My life is now alive. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. And I, I really, I was very, very moved when I read it. And I'm moved now. Uh, uh, just what a beautiful thing that is to hear. And uh, thank you so much for uh, for that. I mean, it, it is tough for people when they see people get into philosophy or therapy or whatever. And they say, well, this person is now unhappier than they were before. And you know, people I understand it. It's skeptical. I mean, they feel skeptical about it. And they don't understand that it is. You know, change is brutal. Change is hard. Change is work. It changes. Uh, it's sort of like one of those uh, Tarzan movies where he's swinging from vine to vine. Change is letting go of the vine, flying through the air and saying, I really hope there's another vine <laughs> there because it really doesn't feel that way sometimes. So, uh, you know, your courage to me has just been amazing. Uh, throughout the time that I've known you and uh, you've just you've just gritted your teeth and done the most amazing kind of work and uh, I I know uh, I know I think I know how hard that has been so uh, when when you emerge from the other side of that subterranean jungle of those mines of Moria it is uh, something that's hard for people to see because like anybody who's quitting particular kinds of destructive habits or addictions you know if you're with a bunch of alcoholics and you quit drinking, people are going to say, well, he's not, he's miserable now. You know, he's lost most of his friends. He's, he sits home. He, you know, he used to be the life of the party. Now he doesn't say boo to a mouse. So, so clearly it's bad to quit drinking because he's miserable. Um, but they don't understand that you don't look at that snapshot 10 minutes into it or 10 months into it, but rather years into it. You know, what is the person's life who quits drinking relative to those who keep drinking three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? like quitting smoking. Oh, he's nervous. He's tense. He's snappy. He's irritable. He's much less happy now that he's quit smoking. It's like, well, yeah, of course, of course he is. But what's going to happen in 20 years to, to general health of the people who stay smokers and the people who quit smoking. So in the short run, yeah, it looks like you're taking a turn in the wrong direction. That's what people don't understand about self-knowledge and philosophy. And so I just think that uh, it's a beautiful to see those starbursts, those flares that go up over the horizon for most people so that they can see the party that's possible once you cross the mountains or once you go through the desert or once you go through the uh, the caverns, however you want to use your <laughs> triple-decker metaphor. So I think it was a beautiful thing that you posted. Uh, I think that it is uh, it is a great thing to give people a sense of, of where things can go. Because, yeah, and I talk about it, but, I mean, it was my mage passage was before FDR, so it's less credible. But I think watching people emerge from the other side, you know, shaken, dazed, bleeding, triumphant, and overjoyed uh, is, is a great thing to see. So I, I really wanted to, to thank you so much for posting that. Yes, and uh, I mean, there's, it's, it's not, not, to, not to go overboard on, on uh, the praise at all, but uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing I can do to repay you. And in a sense, it's not about repaying you, but um, I mean, I, I'm tremendously grateful. For oh, and I appreciate and that, and i i don't want to I don't want to turn aside that gratitude. I mean, I I'm I, I appreciate that. I will accept that gratitude with with great joy and and great humility. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's no repaying me. I mean, this is about the world. This is about the future. This is not about you or me fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And you know, the only repayment that that means anything to me is that 
you have a happy and joyful and enriching and powerful life where you bring, you know, spread the light, spread the joy. Uh, that is, uh, that is the payment. That is, that is how the world is going to grow and how the world is going to emerge shaking, <laughs> broken, bleeding and triumphant into a more peaceful society. So I think that's fantastic. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks for letting me, uh, get, you know, throw it out there. Thanks. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And thank you for posting it. All right. So I just, and James, was there anyone else who wanted to talk before uh, I go to the last couple of questions or two? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I All right. Uh, then yeah, just so. you give James, a, if you a ping, uh, I'll answer a couple of more questions as best I can. Uh, somebody said, would you advise not to move to the U.S. due to its emerging police state? I, I, I can't really, I mean, I can't speak with any authority in this as in most areas, but um, uh, I'm glad that I didn't move to the United States. Um, I was considering it. Uh, at one point, uh, I guess we were considering it, but I'm, I'm glad that I didn't. Uh, I think the United States is, uh, is definitely going to go through some challenges. Uh, I, th- I mean, I, this is not to say that there's any place that's not, right? So, um, uh, but for me, it would have been a whole lot of hassle to go. I think for people in the States, you know, you can ride it through and there'll be things to ride through up here in Canada as there will be in other areas of the, of the world. But for me, it would have been, I mean, if I was in the States, it wouldn't be like, oh my God, I've got to leave, but to move there, and then to see what's going on with the military industrial complex and to see what's going on with the deficits and, and all of that. So I think that, uh, I think that would be a, uh, I think that would be a challenge. Move to Canada. Well, I think Canada's got some, uh, got some good stuff. You know, the one thing that I do like about Canada is that we don't have this constant conveyor belt of army sociopaths coming back from overseas. I mean, we've got a few, but, um, the American population of ex-military members is, um, uh, is is a real is a real challenge. I mean, you you keep going out and training people to be lunatics and dangerous lunatics, and then they come back into society and kind of need to be reintegrated. And of course, a lot of them will go into law enforcement, which means you better not speed, and you better turn, and you better stop fully at stoplights, and you better hit your turn signal when you're turning, and so on. So that would be my recommendation: stay as far away from the cops, because a lot of them have been out there doing terrible things to foreigners and have a lot of guilt and the stink of death and blood uh, on their hands. And uh, they're not going to be happy when they come across a voluntarist or somebody who, you know, so just stay away from the cops. And if you get entangled, uh, you know, smile and yes or no, so three bags full for the sir, because I think that they're going to be progressively more dangerous. All right. We'll just wait for one. Uh, while we're waiting for one, I listened to an econ talk that uh, I thought was good. And let me get, let me get, um, get that. So uh, this is... Um, uh, if you go to um, uh, econtalk.org, I think it is, Russ Roberts did a recent podcast uh, in early May on the financial crisis that I think it is, uh, it is, a, very good, uh, uh, it is a very good podcast. Uh, I will give a link to the full paper. Uh, it is <laughs> mercatus.org, M-E-R-C-A-T-U-S. Sorry, M-E-R-C-A-T-U-S.org forward slash publication slash gambling dash other dash peoples dash money. And I'll put this into the chat window. Uh, I think it is a very good, it's a very good uh, podcast and it's a very good paper. And uh, I will just give you the um, the argument very uh, summed up. So his basic uh, question is, was it the free market that failed in 2008 at the beginning of this uh, of this recession? And, um, 
he says um, that, uh, as Milton Friedman said, capitalism is a system of profit and loss. Profit provides the incentive and loss, the potential of loss, or potential for loss, provides the caution, provides the restraint. And when you have a system that really crashes, uh, the restraint becomes uh, 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 the restraint obviously hasn't been followed. The caution hasn't been followed, and so the massive over leveraging of these banks uh, was not following the profit and loss model of capitalism because loss was not perceived to be to be valuable. And so he says, if it isn't too big to fail, that's the problem. It's the rescue. It's the rescue of creditors going back to 1984, which has encouraged imprudent lending and allowed large financial institutions to become highly leveraged to the point where it was 30 to one or more in terms of the amount of money they had in the game versus the amount they were leveraged. Uh, shareholder losses do not reduce the problem, even when shareholders are the executives making the decisions, which I think is an excellent point, which we can go into in more detail another time, perhaps. Um, these incentives allowed executives to justify and fund enormous bonuses until they blew up their firms. Whether they planned on that or not doesn't matter. The incentives remain as long as creditors get bailed out. And I would, you know, with ridiculous audaciousness, correct Russ Roberts a little bit here and say that if you can give yourself a $5 million bonus in any particular year or even a $1 million bonus, you don't really care about the long-term health of your firm. Because if your firm goes bankrupt, nobody's coming after you for the salary that you paid yourself. So you don't really care. There is a tipping point. I say this as an entrepreneur with some authority, but there is a tipping point. When you make enough money in a particular year, it gets rid of your long-term goals. It it, it evaporates your long-term goals. Nobody's going to sit there and say, well, I'm not going to pay myself $5 million bonus this year because that may have a negative impact on my company in five years. Because with $5 million invested at 10%, you can live really comfortably for the rest of time, right? At least until the economic system collapses. So there is a certain amount at which executive pay and bonuses means that people have no stake in the continued long-term health of their company. Uh, people say, well, these executives made decisions that caused these companies to fail. Well, who cares if the company fails? If you get $5 million out of the rubble, you don't care if the company fails. And in any sane economic system, in any voluntary free market, truly free market economic system, this would be a, a well-recognized issue that if you overpay your executives, they're no longer going to be interested in the long-term health of their company because there's no such thing as a company. There are only individual actors making individual decisions. And if an individual decision harms an abstract entity called a company in a few years but gives you $5 million in your pocket right now, well, that's the decision you're going to make. So... Uh, he says, changes in regulations encourage risk-taking by artificially encouraging the attractiveness of AAA-rated securities. Uh, and this is a more technical thing that you could get higher leverages based on government regulations if stuff was AAA-rated. And so what happened was people just began to bribe the ratings agencies and so on. But its start is always in government uh, regulations. Changes in U.S. housing policy helped inflate the housing bubble, particularly the expansion of Fannie and Freddie into low down payment loans. And what happened was when... People could get a $100,000 loan with $3,000 down and very sketchy employment histories, the so-called liars loans. What happened was this drove up the value of low-income housing. So people would say, well, the housing price is going up 10% every year. So it doesn't really matter if people default because we're going to sell whatever they default on for a lot more than it was worth originally. Uh, and also, people are able to get a greater lines of credit on um, uh, these uh, the housing prices if these housing prices are going up because the value of the assets continues to go up. So it hides the risks and the losses. Uh, so that's another issue. 
The increased demand, he writes, for housing results in, sorry, the increased demand for housing resulting from Fannie and Freddie's expansion pushed up the price of housing and helped make subprime attractive to banks. But the ultimate driver of destruction was leverage. Either lenders were irrationally exuberant or were lulled into that exuberance by the persistent rescues of the previous three decades. And he goes all the way back to the rescue of the Mexican peso a couple of decades ago. But it happened, um, I think long-term capital management also had a bailout in the 90s, so... Uh, but but remember that there's no such thing as an economic actor called a corporation. It, it doesn't it doesn't do the corporation is a piece of paper sitting in a vault somewhere. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't act. It doesn't make choices. Only individuals make choices in an economic sphere, and only for their own uh, particular interest. Now, the interest, if it's rationally tied to the long-term interest of the uh, firm, well, great. But uh, if it's not, and certainly in Wall Street, uh, it's crony capitalism it has nothing to do with the free market. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The furthest thing from the free market is not communism, but Wall Street. Because nobody mistakes communism for the free market, but Wall Street is consistently mistaken for the free market, which means it is the true opposite of uh, of capitalism. So anyway, I'll be uh, getting a little bit more into that uh, in the next week or two. So, All right. <clears throat> I think that we have... No, any interviews coming up? Uh, I have a few, uh, a few in the pan. I, I've had to, I've had to postpone them. Um, uh, one of the problems I was having with the interviews was the preparation for an interview is enormous, and uh, you know, I, I don't know how John Stewart does it. Reads a book a day. I guess he gets his time during the summer to read. But um, uh, if if I'm going to interview someone, I need to read at least one or two books and a couple of papers. It is, it is a massive amount. Of, of preparation, and uh, I have just not found myself able to keep up with the preparation, so uh, I will do some more interviews, and I have a few uh, in the, um, some pretty exciting ones actually, in the, uh, uh, on deck, but uh, uh, they're not, uh, until I get a little bit more time, uh, I'm not, uh... oh yeah, okay, so meetups, uh, okay, we'll date ourselves, Mal- Malaga starting June 20th, uh, I have um, uh, speaking engagements at, at the Porcupine Freedom Festival, uh, what's it, is that June 26th, June 24th? Let me check. Uh, let me check. Let me pretend to be a professional and actually check. Yes, Thursday, June 24th at 6 p.m. at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. I am the opening speaker and uh, will be down there with um, wife and child. Um, and uh, I hope to meet as many uh, listeners there as possible. Uh, I'm mulling over a couple of options for speeches, which I will drop by interested parties to see what they think would be good. And uh, I am also speaking at Libertopia at Libertopia.org, which will be in October in uh, in Hollywood, California. So uh, FDR is going to be on Labor Day, the listener appreciation barbecue, where we shovel as much uh, free food and drinks at you as we can. Uh, so that's going to be Labor Day weekend. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to drop by. There's more information. Oh, James, what's the Amiando link? Amiando, A-M-I-A-N. D-O dot com. Wait for it. When am I going to be on the John Stewart show? I don't think anytime soon. I really don't. I, mean, I think it would be fun. But um, yeah, it's emiando.com forward slash FDR 2010.html. So I hope that you'll be able to drop by. That's a huge amount of fun. Uh, and I look forward to it every year. As I look forward to chatting with you all wonderful people uh, this uh, uh, every Sunday. No, listen, I mean, I, I don't fit with mainstream media, uh, and I'm not, I mean, I, I think John Stewart's show can be enjoyable. Philosophically, he's you know, a ridiculous confetti of, of nonsense, but um, uh, I think that, 
you know, uh, when, when you're a kid, if you're, if you're going to be controlled, right, when you're a kid, the control is usually physical and it's aggressive. Uh, but when you get older and you get bigger, then if there's going to be abuse, the abuse turns to, to verbal. And uh, to me, uh, school is the physical abuse and restraint and confinement and still in many places in the world, uh, physical uh, corporal punishment, beatings. A school is the physical punishment, and then the media, when we get to be adults, is the verbal abuse. Uh, so I really don't fit, because of my strong opposition to verbal abuse, which I actually consider most modern philosophy to be, uh, I really, really don't fit with <laughs> with the media at all. In fact, I'm quite the antithesis of the mainstream media, which is uh, perfectly fine with me, uh, and I think that is actually a, a good place to be. So I would not, uh, I would not <laughs> wait for... Uh, FDR to be embraced by the mainstream media uh, at any time, certainly within my lifetime, but that's okay. Uh, future generations will have a different appreciation of what occurs here uh, in a way that we have um, a different appreciation of what happened to other philosophers who were uh, who had their, their trials and tribulations, I guess you could say. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much. I guess we will call it a day for today, and um, I, I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week. I hope you get a chance to enjoy the summer. And I'd also, just as a reminder, uh, I try to remember this myself as well, I involve yourself in the delicious and physical aspects of life as well. And by that, I mean, of course, hookers and blow. Uh, but, uh, you know, go for a swim and enjoy the wonderful feeling of water on on your skin. The, the Sun-kissed is an overused phrase, but it is a beautiful thing when the weather is warm. Run some sand through your fingers, uh, dig up some weeds, do something earthy and physical, and remember that it's important to live in the body as well as enjoy the life of the mind. And don't let the body starve for sensation in front of a computer. Don't let the body starve for sensation in front of a television. Go out, enjoy the richness and beauty of the world, rub a leaf against your cheek, and uh, <laughs> scratch yourself with a piece of wood gently just to, um, uh, to remind yourself of the beauty of flesh-on-nature contact. Uh, <laughs> Go get some with Mother Nature, and I hope that you have a wonderful week. Thank you so much.